Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do list one week at a time. I'm your host, Nigel. With me are my co-hosts, Andy. Hello. Tessa. Hello. And Sam. Hello. I'm taking over Monkey Off My Backlog this week by force because I assign the host pop culture content <laughs> that is important to me. So I could come on and talk about it. For me. <laughs> this is Nigel Assigns. Yay! I don't have any other grand thing. Yes. It's our first guest host. Yay, I can put this on my resume. Well, I did I did have to do up like a, a an audio drama resume for like a vocal like like a voice acting role and I was like what the f- do I put? I've just done like nonfiction stuff. So I just listed all of the episodes I've hosted of my podcast. It was very weird. Anyway, so today we are go- uh Sam is going to be listening to the Mountain Goats albums Zopalot Machine Tallahassee, Heretic Pride, and Dark in here. Andy is going to be watching the film Help, I'm a Fish, the English dub. And Tessa is going to be reading the novel Bridge of Clay by Marcus Zusak. Do you guys have anything you want to say before we get cracking into it? Well, I mean, I can start off with a confession that I did not listen to the most recent album. I only got through the first three, but, you know, quality, not quantity, right? That's valid. Are you saying that the most recent album is bad? Is that what you're intimating? I wouldn't know because I didn't listen to it. I would say, I would say it is a it is a truth universally acknowledged that Legacy Act's newest album usually isn't that good, unless it is. I'm going to toss this over to Andy. Andy, have you listened to the Mountain Goats' latest album, Dark in Here? Yes, it's fantastic. <laughs> okay. I didn't want to be alone in that one because it's like, I really enjoy In League with Dragons, but it's ever, like a lot of people are like, mm, it, it's okay. Like that would be the one where your, um, your uh, aphorism, I suppose you'd call it, Sam, would work. The thing about it is, is like you have that one to start with, but then you have the second one, mm. which is the defiance of that, which has in itself become a second aphorism, unless it's not. I guess what I'm saying is is there sure. are no solid middle-of-the-road Legacy Act albums. They're either meh or like a return to form. I assigned this one as... I, I don't know whether you'd call it spite, but... I would. Sam... <laughs> yeah. Sam and I have, like, bickered slightly over the Mountain Goats. Uh, and then when John Darnielle, singer-songwriter of the band, tweeted out that you don't need to ask for permission through a label or whatever to use their quotes for, like, epigraphs and stuff in books. Sam sent that to me. She was like, oh, look at this tweet. I'm like, well, prepare for everything ever I do to start with a Mountain Goats quote. I'm glad you brought that up. I was on the phone with my publisher this week. That is a true sentence I just said. Woo! We were talking about rights attributions because I've got things from students and I've got all the right institutional research permission. And I said, but you know, I really thought you were going to ask me about song lyrics because I've got the chapter on Haley Williams. And she, and so my publisher for, for my book said, okay, let's do that. She said, but the one thing you cannot do, you cannot do that. You cannot have, you know, the epigraph or whatever be a quote from a song because you cannot argue that it's fair use because it's just sitting there by itself. It's not doing anything. Fair use only applies if you are you know, using it in context or analyzing it or even satirizing or not satirizing, parodying it. 
And so that's the one instance where you absolutely can't do that, which is why that tweet means as much as it does. I know that now. I did not know it at the time. So, the mountain goats, huh? Yep, for those of you who don't know, just to start with, the mountain goat, also known as the Rocky Mountain Goat, is a hoofed animal, a mammal, endemic to mountainous areas of western North America. A subalpine to alpine species, it is a shore-footed climber, commonly seen on cliffs and ice. And apropos of that, the lead singer of the Mountain Goats is in fact from Claremont, California. So, it works out. See what I did there? You thought it was a joke, and it was. It had two sides. But are th- are they the mountain goats? We'll find out. Here's the other thing about that that I wanted to say. In this age of pronoun disagreement and debates over singular pronouns and plural pronouns being applied to singular people... So I just want to say that Generation X people, such as myself, have been dealing with the he-they pronoun subset for a very long time. To wit, Trent Reznor. Is Trent Reznor Nine Inch Nails? Yes. Although sometimes he brings a band with him. This is that. So the mountain goats are goats, but they are also a goat. (laughs) Except when they're not. I would disagree because, okay, so I feel like I should probably start, like, preface this with why I assign you the albums that I did, because, like, the Mountain Goats have, like, now, uh, I think around 20 studio albums. I'm pretty sure Dark in Here was their 20th. Yeah. I read the Wikipedia page pretty, you know, as much as in-depth as you can with the Wikipedia page. Mm -hmm. And I gotta say, your choices made sense. Like, I totally, like, please explain yeah. So everybody else can hear it, but like I got it. I thought it was a very good array. So the the first one I, I assigned was Zoppelot Machine, which was their like debut studio album in nineteen ninety-four. And that was like, you know, this is the beginning point. And then I wanted to do like a classic album, but I didn't want to go all Hail West Texas, which is where everyone like associates this is what the mountain goat sounds like. So I went with Tallahassee, which came out around the same time uh, and is similar sonically, but it doesn't get as much recognition as All Hail West Texas. I mean, it arguably has gotten more now since um, No Children has blown up as a as a sound on TikTok. And then I kind of wanted to go into their transitional period, like in between, but I didn't want to do Gots because I actually don't particularly like Gots as an album. But I think Heretic Pride is very... Oh, it was a toss-up between Heretic Pride and Transcendental Youth, because they both do really interesting things with their sound. And then, I know you didn't listen to it, but Dark in Here being the most recent one, so then you've kind of got like this nice little timeline. As it stands now, I don't think the Mountain Goats could... F- like, I mean, obviously a lot of it is John Darnielle, he writes all the songs, he's the main voice. Uh, you know, like even during live shows, um, most of the band will leave the stage and he'll do like a, a little solo set in the middle of the mm-hmm. concert, even if it's a full band. So for those of you who don't know as well, the band is four members uh, currently. It wasn't always. Originally, it was just John Darnielle and then they added members to get to their current lineup of John Darnielle, John Worcester, Peter Douglas, uh, Matt Hughes. And But I think now 
they're doing an awful lot of stuff that they couldn't have done, stuff that's really, really exciting, especially on the more recent albums, getting into Knives and Dark in here. There's a lot of stuff, especially with Matt, and Matt will do an awful lot of tours. Like, if the Mountain Goats goes on tour, sometimes it'll just be John and Matt, um, and they do an awful lot of stuff because, like, Matt is... He plays piano, but he's also, like, multi-instrumentalist. Like, he plays the sax. On the songs, he does an awful lot of stuff. So I think a lot of what they're doing now, from, I'd say, Beat the Champ on is like you couldn't like you couldn't do it if it were just John recording on uh you know a boombox cassette player like he used to do although when he returned to that during the pandemic with songs for Pierre Chauvin the uh the EP that was really good that was a nice return to form with the um the Panasonic boombox you mentioned an album title just a second ago where the band became a band really what what year was that what all year Hell was West that? Texas. that w- yeah, All Hell West Texas was like 2002. 2002. Yeah. Like, that was the last one that was recorded on a boombox by um, John on his own. I would say. Okay, so what you are saying is a an even less common arc for a band to be started with a singular voice and then gradually become a more of a, a communal band, true dynamic uh, Hmm. based on your description I would liken that to another band that began as a singular voice on a solo album that was recorded if not on a boombox on very similar lo-fi equipment and that is the the Foo Fighters yes right so the pocket watch album which is the true first Foo Fighters album is very much like Sopalot okay it's it's very much like that in many, many ways. And then the first two albums, uh, the self-titled and the color and the shape are also completely Dave Grohl all the time. Mm. And then There's Nothing Left to Lose, which came out in 99. So a couple of years before, you know, what you just mentioned, that's when it was actually Taylor Hawkins who who basically proved that he could do as good of a job as Dave Grohl, and so he loosened up at that point. Mm. Yeah, and then if you go... I mean, we saw the Foo Fighters a couple of years ago, and Taylor Hawkins was doing something very similar to what you're saying about... Uh, is it Matt, Matt Hughes is the, the other member of the Mountain Goats who's collaborating? Yeah, he's... Yeah, because it's... Um, Peter Hughes is on bass, and John Worcester does drums, and then... Matt Hughes kind of does everything else. Or Matt Douglas. Yeah, and so like the the shows that the Foo Fighters were doing by the end before unfortunately Taylor Hawkins passed away were very similar to that in terms of Taylor Hawkins was clearly taking more ownership of his part of the band. Hmm. May he rest in peace. To to go back to something we said on one of your 17 podcasts a while back. It really is all one song. Everything does connect eventually. <laughs> it does. Hard now. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. They're my favorite band of all time. I don't know about Sam. So now I suppose we should get into the... They are They are not my favorite band of all okay. time. Okay. <laughs> I'm very sad to hear okay. that. I'm but very sad okay. to hear that. What were your thoughts? Uh, I suppose we should maybe start with Zoppelot Machine. It'd be very bad if we started with Dark in here being like, what's your thoughts on the band for the album you didn't listen to? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so, okay. You know, the lo-fi thing didn't really phase me at all. I thought it was interesting. 
It it I mean it I, I will say the one thing I mean there are several positive things I can and will say, but Good. You know, nothing nothing about this struck me as gimmicky. This is a person and then people doing their thing. And, you know, even if it didn't resonate with me as strongly as it does with you, that's that's fine. That's cool. But, you know, so I listened to that first album and it was really funny. We were actually talking about Frank Ocean on um, the the Pitchfork episode uh, that we did with uh, Jarrett and Lazi, but this was Jarrett. And we were talking about how Frank Ocean uses a lot of those sounds, didn't record on those things, but uses those sounds, you know, the starting and the stopping and the hiss to effect. And that's just really what's happening on this album. Here's the thing. Immediately... Because I've listened to a lot of music and have a lot of impressions, we're at a point where it's really difficult for me to say, this reminds me of nothing I've ever heard before. You know, so Hmm. it reminded me, this album reminded me of a couple of other things. Now, if you listen to the Mountain Goats first and then you listen to these people, you'd be like, oh, it reminds me of the Mountain Goats. And that'd be fair. Mm -hmm. So his stuff reminds me of early Colin Malloy Decemberists and some Stephen Merritt magnetic fields. Yeah. That's what I got. I I heard that and I was like, oh, this is that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not the same thing, but it's like, this is this idiom that we're working in here. I, I understand this. And I mean, that's not good, bad, or indifferent. It just is. It's like, it's a way into music and saying, oh, I, I recognize what we're doing here. I'm not trying to figure out where this sound is or what it's doing. It's like, no, I know what it's doing. So it's a much easier kind of inroad to listening to it. Yeah, I can definitely see the like sonic kind of similarities between uh, 90s and early 2000s Mountain Goats and like the magnetic fields on 69 Songs About Love. His voice isn't as low as Stephen Merritt's, but then again, who is? Yeah, like John Darnielle, an awful lot of the criticism that I see for people where they're like, Someone has shown them the mountain goats. They're like, his voice is too nasal. So it's like categorically the opposite of Stephen Merritt's. Well, that's Colin Malloy, right? You know, yeah. For the De- Decemberist. And, you know, that's the one of the other things that you notice is, you know, that 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 very folky, alt folky instrumentation. And, you know, I I know because I know you can't get through an Antioch episode without quoting the mountain goats. So. I mean, guilty, shock. guilty as the charged. lyricism is it right? I mean, the lyricism is a big deal here, and yeah. he he very much fits within that you know clever wordplay uh, witticisms by the ton that Colin Malloy and Stephen Merritt do. Which, by the way, Lemony Snicket is associated with yeah uh, the magnetic fields under oh, his oh I didn't know that under his actual name yeah the tragic <laughs> treasury right with the Gothic so, Archies. Yeah, so I, I mean, this is this is very much in that, not in that tradition because they were doing the thing at the same time, mm. but in that idiom again. What I really appreciate about the lyricism is, and I, I really enjoy that it's on Zappalot Machine. The debut album is one of my favorite songs. Is uh, Grendel's mother, <laughs> which I don't know whether you have any particular like favorite songs. I suppose I should have asked that before obviously like we've got going to georgia on this one which is was a staple for a while and then john darniel uh just like refused to play it anymore he didn't like the song but i really enjoy grendel's mother because it's this 
he manages to make like a sympathetic moving picture of uh you know Grendel from from the Beowulf and his mother uh, and like the loss that like she's the only one who who comes down to mourn him this monster yeah just like uh, uh John Gardner's Grendel the one of the things about particularly about John Gardner's lyric lyricism is uh telling different stories that he has no um real connection to you know that he's telling fictional stories at at the same time Mm. That because he uh, gets a vibe and just wants to tell it like uh, like no children. Yeah. So uh, kind of it's a reverse Taylor Swift. I was gonna say, is this kind of like folklore in yeah. that way that like Taylor Swift is no longer writing confessional music in folklore? She's actually taking on different personas and writing like different elements of different stories in that album. Is it kind of like that? Yeah, kind of. Like, some of the stuff, like Andy says, is he's just writing where he gets vibes. Some of it is based off of stuff he's reading, which is what um, songs for Pierre Chauvin came from. He read, like, Lives of the Last Pagans by Pierre Chauvin, and that's what inspired that. Um, Beat the Champ was inspired by, like, his, the um, like televised wrestling he watched as a kid. The first one he really kind of opened up about himself and was writing confessional music was Sunset Tree. Tallahassee is a, a is a um, concept album about this couple where they're taken to their logical extreme and that's their character arc. With the 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 mountain goats, there are always like lines that I vibe with me on such a core level that it's just like, oh, he wrote this n- somehow knowing my relationships and knowing how I've interacted with people in some ways. Oh, uh, I'm thinking I'm thinking of just like dance music, like the visceral effect oh. that. Like, so this is what the volume knob's for? Oh, destroys me. One of my favorite songs by the Mountain Goats that's very underappreciated is Alibi. And the the, ter- the heel turn that it takes at the end is one of my favorite things. Anyway, anyway, this is not me talking about the Mountain Goats. I do not have specific songs okay. to talk about with you today because... Because? Because... You you assigned me four, and I only made it through three. But like that is not the way that that I get into music. Like I can give you my general impressions. This is what I thought. This is who it sounded like. These are the things that I've learned. That's interesting. It's a pretty good surface okay. take. When you and Andy do your Uncle John's. Mountain Goats album by album podcast. Be I'll be good. happy to come on and and give you a track by track. We just started another podcast here. <laughs> one of these albums, you know, another one for the network. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, Nigel's network of podcasts. We're we're very close, but anyway, so like, I I can't really do that. I mean, I can tell you some other things that I think about Tallahassee and Heretic Pride. I do have things, um, but not a song-by-song breakdown. The only song that I'm interested from Tallahassee would be No Children. Like, I, it is such an iconic song now, and it, it yeah. captures what I think John Darnielle is the best at, is just writing, immediately writing, and you understanding this is a couple who hates each other so much. Yeah. Are you familiar with the uh, lyrics to No Children, Sam? 
No. Uh, so actually, this is funny because I have never heard a Mountain Goat song before Sam started listening to these albums. And I didn't actually okay. listen to the albums with her, but I did hear like a couple of songs here and mm. there as I was reading Bridge of Clay. And I didn't know that it was called No Children until you literally started describing what it was about. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's like the one where he says, like, I hope you die. I hope we both die. Like, for some reason, that lyric like stuck out to me. And I was just like, what is this person singing about? What is happening? And why does he sound like Weird Al Yankovic? That is actually who he thinks he sounds like is Weird Al Yankovic. And I mean that as a compliment. I mean that as a compliment because I think. Al Yankovic is actually a very yeah. good musician. Anyway, No Children was the one that like caught my well, attention. And I think that's really interesting too because that is not something that happens to me the first or even the second time I hear something. Like lyrics aren't going to stick that way. I think it's interesting to hear you talk about it that way. I mean, just the way people experience music differently. Now, I will say about Tallahassee, I did want to say... One thing in, okay. in in preface to what I thought about it. So so the Mountain Goats have been on two mid-major labels. They were on 4AD for Tallahassee and for several albums, and currently they are on Merge. So I didn't listen to the ones on Merge, which I think is funny because Merge Records is known for Neutral Milk Hotel, The Magnetic Fields, Spoon, Camera Obscura, M. Ward, you know. And I'm like, that sounds like that's about right. 4AD. If you don't know anything about 4AD, they've been around for a while. And it's not really one kind of music because they've had over the years, they've had the Cocteau Twins, uh, Bauhaus, Dead Can Dance, Lush, The Breeders, Red House Painters, which by the way, Mark Kazelik is another similar artist that I recognize yeah. listening to the Mountain Goats. Camera Obscura, again, they're, they're label buddies with Mountain Goats. St. Vincent, who appears on Heretic Pride, talk about that in a little bit. Boney Vare, The National, and Daughter. So 4AD is, if you like quote-unquote indie music, you know what 4AD is. And so Tallahassee is toward the beginning of their time. It's not the first album, but it's toward the beginning of that time on 4AD. This album really sounds very, very close, crossing the line from indie to alt country. Very, very close. So you think about Wilco before they turned experimental, you know, Jeff Tweedy um, and his former bandmate Sun Volt. When Jeff Tweedy went and did Yankee Foxtrot Hotel with Wilco, he said famously, I'm leaving the alt-country stuff to Ryan Adams. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's all I'll say about Ryan Adams. It, the, this, this label got used, it was called Americana, and it's basically the intersection of alt-country and indie music. And I think somebody, you know, like, who made who would make Tallahassee is not it's doing it as a persona. It's not a genuine shift in the music. I think it's an attempt to do something, to experiment in different kinds of genres, which is cool. I heard the Jayhawks and uh, early to mid career Neil Young in this. Like it's hard not to say that the Neil Young is referential 
I mean, people do just sound that way sometimes. But it's hard to say that that's not referential. I think the Jayhawks is more of a, this is what happens when you inhabit this genre in the mid-90s or early 2000s in this case. These are all things I like, by the way. Yeah. Listeners can't see, but I'm nodding. (laughs) I didn't want you to... None of that was bad. (laughs) Did you have any views on Tallahassee as like a cohesive unit as a storytelling thing? No. And okay. and I I probably will tell just, you I probably should have assigned you one album. Uh, that would probably have been better should idea. have. Well, I can tell you why. Um and okay. we talked about this a little bit last week as well to Andy's point about how that's surprising. I'm going to say this in the nicest of ways. It truly is a generational thing. And I talked about this again last week when I when you have $40 You can buy a Nintendo Mm -hmm. cartridge or three albums when I'm a kid, right? So you have to make decisions wisely. And so when I bring an album, and when I'm talking about album, I'm talking about tapes until about 91. And so you have to make some strategic decisions. How am I going to listen to this? Knowing it's going to be the only thing that I can listen to start to finish that's not something I already had for, I don't know, weeks, months. Hard to know when you're a child and you don't have money. Yeah, I'm very small and I have no money. And you can understand the kind of stress that I'm under. She, she, you get it. You get it. But that's that's part of the problem about being precocious is that you like things above your station, which often means you can't afford them. So the approach that I would take is I'll listen to the album. And while mm-hmm. I'm listening to the album the first time, I'm going to soak in the sounds. I am obsessively reading the liner notes, which, you know, so like if I were listening to Heretic Pride, I'd be like, Annie's on this album. Awesome. And so like, mm. that's what would have happened. You know, if the lyrics are on, which, you know, bless everybody who put the lyrics in their liner notes and curse everybody who doesn't. Um, I'm going to listen to the album and I'm going to read the lyrics as I'm listening to it. That's how things are going to sink in, which is why us Gen Xers were not phased when we had the people who couldn't enunciate because we had liner notes. We knew how to do this. It's a skill set. And so Mm. you take time with music and it's not the first impression isn't as important. And as soon as you get streaming and the fire hose truly opens... First impressions mean a lot more because you may never listen to it again because you don't have to. You didn't spend that money on it. That is a that is a muscle memory for me. This is how I encounter music, which is problematic if you're only going to listen to it once. Yeah, so I mean, those connections, this sounds like, this reminds me of, that's where I go to first whenever I listen to something. That's very different. Like, you know, Andy talks about you know, lines from the mountain goats, uh, you know, that, that stick out to him the first time he hears them and, st- and, and stays with them. And that's, I mean, that's cool. That is an objectively great way to listen to music, you know, but like mm. I must have listened to, I, I mean, given that it's a 11, 12 minute song, this is something, but I've listened to Cowgirl in the Sand. I, I don't know how many times I listened to it before the line, hello, Ruby in the dust, like smacked me upside the head and said, okay, that is a part of who I am, which it is. But that wasn't until like, 
you know, double digit listens that that really stuck out to me. That's not where I go to first. It's really interesting that sound has this kind of like, like memory function that a lot of other senses don't do where you're like, like you can see something and you'd be like, Oh, okay. Or you can have deja vu and you'd be like, this seems familiar, but even smell or touch or taste doesn't really have the one where like, like with a sound, you'd be like, Oh, I was here when I heard this before. Like it's, it's much more transportive than other senses. Um, I don't know. Unless you want to talk about proprioception. Um, Tessa, you know how Nigel always quotes the mountain goats whenever we're talking? Well, payback. Here it comes. Tessa's going to quote from Terry Pratchett. Yay. This came up in our episode that we recorded yesterday, and I wasn't going to do it, but then you all started talking about music. It was sad music, but it waved the sadness like a battle flag. It said the universe had done all it could, but you were still alive. Yeah, that's very, that's very mountain goats. Um, <laughs> yes, it's very, it's very. You were cool for uh, those of you who know that song. The idea that music recognizes you and you recognize music. The mountain goats are really, really specific, but it's like you know, it's the same type of memory that you had, Sam. You know, with, with the music you were listening to while going to class. You want a final thought that that really ties in well with that? Yeah. I would. You ready? Okay. So here's the thing. I, I don't know if this is something they talk about over over there, but it's it's a it's a thing that you can't help but hear here, which is, you know, by the time you hit your late twenties, all the new music is the music for the youths and you can't understand it and you just atrophy in your musical taste. And I think there's I think there's some truth in that. And I held it off for as long as I could, you know, until the last five years, I'd say. But I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. I think that what happens, the older you get, the things that you heard earlier in life that really informed how you interact with music, good, bad, or indifferent, which is where a lot of people are, Mm. those become the formative things. Yes. And it takes a lot it takes a lot to cut through that noise. And I haven't heard a lot really in the last few years that hasn't cut through. I'm struggling, I'm sure there's something, but I'm struggling to think of of whomst. But you know, you can be introduced to something new and go, Oh, that's great, but it reminds me of X, Y, and Z. Now I want to go listen to them. Like not the new thing, because the new thing it doesn't, and it doesn't matter how good it is, unless it's like that rare thing that can just cut through. It's not something. I'm not a boomer. I'm not going to sneer at it, but I'm going to say this is good. Yeah, but it's not. It's not the thing that's that's sunk in, and it'll happen to you. <laughs> <laughs> it will. It will sooner than you. I'm already think. atrophying. Well, I said last week, I said, I want to, I want a podcast to talk about music every week. That's like what yeah. I want. So, you know, I'm not complaining. Yeah. Would you like a fun fact um, before we move on? Please. 
It'd be weird if you didn't have one. So the song that I mentioned, Woke Up New, do you know who directed the music video for that? Ryan Johnson of Star Wars uh, The Last Jedi fame. John Darnielle has made a uh, song for Ryan Johnson about The Last Jedi. I read about that. So you would recommend or not recommend that? I, I don't, I mean... As as Nigel points out, I was coerced. I think it's hard to come up with a recommendation out of coercement. Yeah, you know, it was really funny the way that Nigel like actually mailed me a gun to point at you while so, you were okay, listening to here's this music. The, here's the I had to bribe a lot of U.S. customs and import officials to get this, to, just to get you to listen to Mountain Goats. Uh. <laughs> okay, hey, use older people. Do you like Mark Kazelik? Do you like the Jayhawks? Do you like the Decemberists? Do you like the magnetic fields? Have you ever said to yourself, I cannot get enough of that Annie Clark character, and I will listen to anything that she does, even if it's in a backing variety? Well, friends, have I got a band for you. It's called The Mountain Goats. And if you're listening to the podcast and you like The Mountain Goats, you should listen to The Jayhawks, The Decemberist, and The Magnetic Fields. Thumbs up. Wink. <laughs> okay. Andy. <laughs> I I assigned you this film because, like, I know you like the Mountain Goats, so that wasn't what I was going to assign you. And now you. the listeners know very well that I like the Mountain Goats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Wait, but, Andy, you like the Mountain Goats? Yeah. I didn't know that. But I remember... I didn't... They're not a ska band. You clearly haven't heard Cry for Judas, so... You're right, I have it. <laughs> Cry for Judas, the most Sky Mountain Goat song. Um, but I remember in the the Monkey Discord server, some sometime it came up because like I can't remember what I was going to assign you before this, and then I think I mentioned Help I'm a Fish or whatever, and then I said, "Have you seen this?" And you were like, "No," and I was like, "Okay," and then I logged out the back of my head. Help I'm a Fish is a weird fever dream of a film that I remember like in snatches from my childhood. And then I had this period of, like, self-gaslighting where I was like, that's not a thing. And then I spoke to people and they were like, hey, do you remember this film? And I'm like, holy, f- you also saw it? <laughs> you know when you watch a film or you see something and you're like, okay, and then you're like, well, that can't possibly have been like that or, like, I've just made that up. You know, you sort of convince yourself that nothing could ever be like that and then you, then you get like you see someone or someone will make a tiktok and be like hey remember this crazy thing and you're like oh yeah uh that traumatized me as a child <laughs> and this film would have traumatized anybody as a child hold on i just need to i just need to double check what year it came out. i'm pretty sure it's um 2001 right or 2000 yes yes so 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 i i investigated this because oh no it was released it was released in Ireland in 2001. That's why, yes. It is It is not available in my geographic location. <laughs> at, at all. In no way, shape, or form is this film available in the U.S. You cannot rent it. You, cannot, like, you can't rent it on Vudu or any other music streaming service. You cannot find this film legally in the United States. Luckily... I am an expert on knowing how to pretend you are in Ireland. You got mailed a movie. I got mailed a gun. 
No, Tessa got mailed a gun. Well, I was what did for, Tessa get mailed? I, I was waiting for for the story about how Nigel mailed Noelle a gun to point at Andy <laughs> while watching this film. Came to this bark. is not a film I'm going to show her. This is one of the weirdest movies. It is a Danish production, but I I, I was able to get my hands on the English dub, uh, which is weirdly spectacular. No. Uh, I will correct you. I will correct you. It is a Danish, German, Irish film. For some reason, the three <laughs> countries were involved. Yeah, yeah. For context, for how weird this film is, when I I suggested this to Tessa, I put into I was talking to Tessa, and then Tessa went with these recommendations to Sam and Andy, and she came back to me and said, "Andy wants to know if you want him to watch the Danish version or the English dub." Now I didn't know that the Danish version <laughs> existed. So I I will have a confession to make here while i did i did listen to the english dub i did on occasion switch it to the danish just to just to better understand what the danish intent for these characters and these songs were because there are songs there are songs in this so so um yes there are this is a very strange film and it came out a very strange time in film animation as well because the character work mm. is mostly done in traditional hand-drawn cell and cell animation style but the backgrounds are digital and this brings up this weird thing where it feels like both an incredibly expensive movie and an incredibly cheap movie at the same time it's this weird thing where it's like this is kind of like one of the things i think where you can feel the effects of 9-11 on popular culture because it's so bizarre and then 9-11 happened and there was like this kind of like snap back in, in like in culture in the way things were happening but like everything from the 90s into like 2000 or 2001 got like really really surreal or at least some of the stuff i've seen this kind of is like i don't know like it it it, it, it emblemizes it basically like for me anyway like growing up right should we get into the plot or i see I see you struggling with it there, and I'm like, did Sam and Tessa, do you you have any, like, ties to help I'm a Fish? No, I have never heard of this film before you assigned it to Andy. I am very interested, because I love, I love truly weird films. I don't talk about it a lot on this show. So I don't think this is a truly weird film. I think this is uh, the director's attempt to uh, do a Don Bluth film. (laughs) Yeah. This style is very, very Don Bluth. This is very um, Little Toaster. I haven't heard that about that film in a long time. Oh, God. Okay, okay, plot. Nigel, tell the plot. Get, give us the plot for Help, I'm a Fish. Okay, so Help, I'm a Fish is about... This kid, Fly... Is Yeah, his name is Fly, not Fry, correct? Yes, it's Fly. Yeah, it's Fly for some reason. So him and his sister Stella are being babysat by their aunt, and she's there with her son, Chuck. Those are the three main characters, Fly, Stella, and Chuck. And they're being they're, they're being babysat by their aunt, Anna. Like, it's nighttime, and they sneak out, and they go to this boathouse, which is the home of this kind of, like, mad genius dude called Professor McCrill, He's a marine biologist, and he starts talking about, like, climate change and polar ice caps and stuff. And uh, he has, 
it, his solution is he's developed a potion which turns humans into fish. And then he also has an antidote, which he's meant to, like, he's meant to uh, get. Or you're, you're meant to get it and it will turn you back. Uh, and so then Stella accidentally drinks the thing because she thinks it's lemonade. And then she turns into a starfish and gets thrown out the window because Fly doesn't realize that that's there. And then they have to, like, go and try and find Stella, and then they turn into fish. So Fly turns into... I don't know what sort of fish he turns into, um, but Chuck becomes a jellyfish. Fly becomes... It's a California fly fish. Yes, it's very specific, but I'm just looking at that and I'm like, hmm, fish. But yes, so they, they go out, and then when this is dropped, like, the antidote gets dropped into the water and it's leaking, and there's a pilot fish and a great white shark, and they drink some of this antidote, and it causes them to not become human, because it's only a bit, so they become, like, intelligent, anthropomorphized fish. Uh, Joe, the pilot fish, is voiced by, uh, in the English dub anyway, Alan Rickman! Joe, as a character, is a combination of Ursula from Little Mermaid and Scar from The Lion King. That is a mashup. Yeah, and like early Bond villain energy. Mm-hmm. A combination of Eartha Kitt and Jeremy Irons by uh, through Alan Rickman. Yes. Yeah, and also, what's the name of the Moonraker villain? Hugo yeah. Drax yes. or something like that? Hugo Drax. He, there's elements of Hugo Drax in there as well. So yeah, they become intelligent, and then they found like this whole civilization, uh, and they're going to launch a revolt. And the shark is kind of like a like a very simple-minded. Like he's basically the muscle, you know. He's he's the top dog when they're when they have no like human intelligence. But then the, um, Joe becomes like the leader, and so then they meet up with Sasha, who's a seahorse, and then they have all this. They have all this stuff because if they don't get the antidote within 48 hours, they're going to be stuck as fish forever. Like, the film is 72 minutes long. I don't want to spend 72 minutes trying to describe how bizarre this film is. It's so... Like, if you want to know why I am the way I am, like, help I'm a fish is a large part of that because (laughs) it's grotesque. They also, like, make you think at several points throughout the film that, like, some of the children are dead, that they've just been killed. In horrifying um, ways. Like, like not... Yeah. <laughs> not, um... Uh... You know, it's not like your bog standard, you know, where someone would be like, they'll have gone under the water or whatever, and you think that they're dead, and then, like, 12 seconds will pass by, and then they'll sputter up and they'll cough up some water. It's not like that. That's like, this is like, oh, no, they're dead. They're gr- like these children are grieving for their dead sibling, and then then they come back obviously because it's a children's film. But like still, also, Chuck is played by Aaron Paul yes. of Breaking Bad fame. It's his acting debut. I'm pretty sure. The, the this film is definitely worth a watch. Uh, I think you need to be the right kind of inebriated though. The music that comes out of nowhere. There's a Danish pop song. But also, like, where he, where they're like, oh, what do you want, what do you want us to do? And Alan Rickman is just like, die. <laughs> it is so, it is so weird. I, 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 I enjoyed this film. I don't think I will show my daughter it. No. Land Before <laughs> Time is traumatic, but at least has the benefit of having 13 other Land Before Times to, like, be happy. 
this stands on its own and it just does its own thing for 72 minutes and at the end of it it goes now you get to pay for therapy for the rest of your life <laughs> cuz i know uh, i don't know how old you are exactly Andy, and i won't ask you how old you are um, oh, I, i'm 31 like, ah okay well i wasn't going to i wasn't going to ask you but like you're watching it now at 31 mm-hmm. for the first time i watched this like around when it came well I probably wouldn't have watched it at one, but like I remember watching this when I was like six or seven, like because they used to show it on. Um, I don't know whether they have Boomerang in the states. It's kind of like associated with Cartoon Network. Yeah, it was included on the Sky package, uh, and it was like in the cartoon section. It was Cartoon Network and Cartoon Network plus plus one were six oh one, six oh two, and then Boomerang was six oh three. Um, but yeah, they used to just randomly show that thing on and he would just like you'd be in between like tom and jerry and scooby-doo and you just have help i'm a fish i told told sarah as we we were watching this i was like this is a nine o'clock at night cartoon network we need to fill an hour before adult swim kind of show or kind of movie nigel why did you assign this to andy specifically why did i assign this why did i assign this to andy first of all because he had kind of said that he hadn't seen it. So I was like, okay. But also I feel like it would have worked best for, cause I've kind of wanted to be like, when I was thinking about it, I was like, this shaped a large part of me, like, and my personality for better or worse, but it's not like a mainstay of the things I'm into now. Like I mentioned on the first episode of monkey, I was on like the first CDs I got were, you know, the Beatles, Johnny Cash and queen. And that's made a large part of who I am. But, like, Help I'm a Fish has really shaped me. But it's not something that I engage with on a daily basis. And out of the three of yous, I think it works best for Andy. Uh, like, for obvious reasons, I gave Sam the Mountain Goats and not Andy. And for, uh, well, it's obvious to me, I don't know. But it's like, Andy enjoys watching films. I enjoy animation a whole lot. Yeah, I, I know Andy enjoys animation from the many monkeys that were different anime series that he was watching. And then also just, like, I was like, well... Here's a fun little thing that might mess with them. Um, Andy also enjoys weird, messed up stuff too. So yeah, everything that exactly. you're telling me sounds like yeah, this is uh this is like Page Master, like Secret of Nim level dark and. Did you enjoy it, Andy? Enjoy is a strong word. <laughs> Do, I like. I don't think you can physically enjoy this film. It has to be something that like you experience it's like um the scene in in a clockwork orange where they hold malcolm mcdowell's eyes open yeah and they're they're like yeah and there are some like dumbo pink elephant style like fever dream stuff oh so like the the big jellyfish like (sighs) yeah and um also like the whole like plot doesn't make any sense that as far as like time like literally Joe builds an entire metropolis of fish and fish um and fish sycophants in less than a few hours. Yeah, because like the deadline is forty eight hours for or else they will be stuck as fish. But he's built an entire metropolis and is planning a glorious revolution. And then there's also like you know, it it it's not even just like a state, it becomes like a fascist dictatorship, you know, like an ethno state nearly. Right, like Scar and his hyenas. Yeah, he does this in in several hours, which I mean, like, more power to him. Um, Obviously, like, I'm not condoning a fascist ethnostate, but, like, the work ethic. for Like, he's a fish, he still has no opposable thumbs. 
I, I'm I'm very unsure just when you bring up that it came out of Germany and Denmark. I'm very unsure as to why Ireland was like associated with because I didn't know that for ages. I thought it was just like it was an American film because like most of the animated stuff that I watched as a kid came from America. Right, and it does look very American. Uh, it looks very Hollywood except for the backgrounds. Yeah, and like I said before Tessa brought it up, I didn't know that there was a Danish dub of it, but like. I remember Googling it because I had to convince some of my friends that this is a real thing. And then when I Googled it to show them the Wikipedia page, it said German, Danish, Irish. And I was like, what? Irish animation is a thing. Cartoon Saloon is really good. But like Cartoon Saloon wasn't really a thing in 2000, 2001. I, I will I will say I am I am happy I watched this. I'm happy I experienced this. Uh, even just to remember Alan, Alan Rickman, uh, Terry Jones was very funny in it. Yes. Terry Jones is McCrill, the um, scientist for the for people who haven't watched the film. But also, I appreciate you giving me only a seventy minute film, which as 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 is famous on this show, I love some short ass movies. Does it sound like something that you two would watch, Sam and Tessa? I would watch it. I think this sounds really interesting. And and I'll be and I'll be in the same room. Yeah, Sam will fall asleep. because of the sleeping disorder. But I'll watch it. Because, like, here's the thing about Help, I'm a Fish. There's no real themes to the film. It's just there. And, I like, I know you can argue. You can make... I mean, it's reductive, but you can make the argument that, oh, it's a children's film, and so it doesn't need them. But, like, a lot of a lot of children's, one, children's like, films and media deal with things. I'm thinking of, like, I don't know, I, like... A, a, a duo that goes really well in my mind, also from my childhood. This is going to explain an awful lot about me. Um, Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium and Bridge to Terabithia were kind of are kind of like a double feature in my mind. <laughs> uh, an interesting anecdote: I went into a bar in Scotland called the Doghouse that was like covered in uh, album covers and comic book covers on the wall, and there was like fairy lights everywhere, and the TV in the bar was just playing Bridge to Terabithia at like you know just before the funeral scene and i was like i walked up to the um person at the bar and i said to her why are you doing this to me and she went what and i just went i pointed at the tv and i said to her you know what you're doing uh yeah is a real my girl type movie which i i realized that probably was very rude but it was like like it like that film fucked me up but you know it's a film ostensibly for children that is about like learning to deal with the unexpected death of someone you love. And then Mr. Megorium's Winter Emporium is like coming to terms with the protracted and drawn out death of someone that you care for. And so like they have themes, but like Help I'm a Fish does not. Like it starts off and this guy is like, oh, climate change is a thing and the whole world is going to be underwater and we need to do something about that. And then he's like, oh, we're just going to make people fish instead of like, I don't know, reinforcing the ice caps or something. But it has no themes. Does it have character arcs? Mm, probably. Hey, children's films, especially children's animated films, are some of the messed, most messed up things that I have seen. So I, Honest, I understand. Yeah, it has the vibes of like David Lynch could have directed segments of this. <laughs> <laughs> Would you agree with that statement? Uh, the only real rule is everything has to be okay in the end. Yeah, it is okay in the end after like multiple like traumatic child death fakeouts. Um, so like trigger warning for that. I will say, like, some of it is very upsetting. And some pretty uh, horrifying deaths of sentient fish. Yeah. 
like Andy and I cannot stress how messed up, how grotesque it actually is. I'm just nodding. Yeah, they were allowed podcasting, famously visual medium. Closing thoughts. Closing thoughts. Weird movie, fun experience. I can definitely see why some people did not remember it from their childhood and also why people think when you describe it, it's a prank. Tessa, I, I assigned to you a book which is very near and dear to my heart. I reread it. Uh, I've read it every year since it came out. I got it when it came out for Christmas uh, and I've read it every year since. It's Bridge of Clay by Marcus Zusak, author of The Book Thief, in case you're wondering where do I know that name from. Also, I Am the Messenger, his debut, is really good as well. Yeah, so this book came out in 2018, and I am actually really curious to know why this book is so near and dear to your heart. Not because I don't think it's a good book. I just, I went into this blind. Like, you told me, read this book. I had read The Book Thief before, but other than that, I knew nothing about this book. So I just, which I think was, like, honestly the best way to go into it, I Hmm. think. I had no idea what genre it was, what it was about anything like that. So this is a piece of literary fiction, which is not my favorite genre of things to read. Okay. (laughs) For reasons that I've talked about before when talking about Zadie Smith on this podcast, but I did very much enjoy this. So I should, I should start with that. Good. It's a novel about five teenage boys in Sydney, Australia, coping with the death of their mother and abandonment by their father. There's Matthew, who is the narrator of the book. He's like writing the book as he's narrating it. Rory, Henry, Clay, who is the title character, and Tommy. And they're all trying to figure out how to survive, how to take care of each other, and this menagerie of animals that Tommy has collected, which I personally thought was like the funniest part of the book. Their father returns home suddenly after three years asking them to come help him build a bridge. To Terabithia? Which is his way of like, which is his way of like trying to get back into their lives. Uh, And only Clay agrees, which is why you get the title of the book Bridge of Clay, which by the way, it was very surprising to me because I was like imagining a literal bridge made out of clay, but then it was like, oh no, this is the bridge of clay. Yeah. Yes, but here, yes, here's the fun thing at the end. The bridge is not actually made out of clay. The bridge is made out of uh, stone. Um, so the title is just, yeah, the title is, is just that, about the character. that is what you would want a bridge made Yeah, out. I don't really think a bridge made out of clay is what you no. want. Like, that just yeah. doesn't You don't seem... want a jar made out of clay either, unless it's been fired properly. Well, well, that, <laughs> that, that band name is a little too long for record albums. <laughs> <laughs> jar of clay that's been fired properly at... <laughs> Yeah, they start off and they go, um, you wouldn't want a jar of clay, and then it's just dot, dot, dot in, like, two square brackets. <laughs> the way that they do, like, long song titles the next on The Fiona Apple album. I'm physically trying to find my copy of it now in the shed, TM, but I don't know where it is. I have no idea where it could be. It might be in my room in the house, but it could also be, like, halfway across the country in uh, my, my student accommodation. So I don't know, actually. We have so far revealed that uh, Zuzak, who you know wrote a novel, The Book Thief, which is considered young adult lit. I, I'm not sure if I am the messenger is or not. I, in my head it is, but, but that actually speaks to the point here. Right, here's the point. That's it, exactly. Can you guess what motion Nigel made based on my reaction? Anyway... 
So the book thief is young adult lit. We've been talking about Bridge to Terabithia, you know, tangentially, and then that got tangentially related to Bridge of Clay. All those pieces really put together in my head. Hey, Tessa, I didn't think this was young adult lit. Is it? It's not. It's not. No, I would oh, say I didn't know they most, could do that. Right, young adult lit than something else. I would say this is at most new adult. Yeah, perhaps, but it it fits more into like an adult literary fiction, like a Zadie Smith or David, David Mitchell. David Mitchell. Yeah, that's kind of more what this fits into. I like David Mitchell, but um, the English comedian David Mitchell. Yeah, I I figured you'd go with Mitchell. Uh, Andy made the same Mitchell and Webb reference <laughs> on um, on Discord the other day. Ah. Yeah, but like on paper, I should dislike this book because it's literary fiction about men and yes, what I like to call the universality of male problems, TM. Ah. Uh, and I generally historically hate that, which is one of the things I don't like about literary fiction because literary fiction is a field that's dominated by men writing about male problems yeah and i just like it's fine like i've read good versions of that i've read bad versions of that and if that's what speaks to you that's what speaks to you it's just not something that uh draws me in and it's been mansplained to me way too many times in bars so i i just don't generally seek out like this kind of thing i did read the book thief and i did really like it so i was i was very curious about this so i did like this though is the thing and the reason why i think is because In recent years, especially, there has been a real movement in pop culture to start reexamining masculinity, especially like toxic masculinity, and in a way that I don't think has been done previously, in a way that is much more open to the idea of different kinds of masculinities, in a way that's much more nuanced and much more critical of of the way that masculinity is masculinity is constructed and and deconstructed and it's not just like oh look at my I'm a man and I have problems too it's like no like let's actually talk about like what masculinity is and like why it functions the way that it functions mm. and and it's been done really well like we we're we're watching through the series right now our flag means death uh which is stars Taika Waititi, who's directed a few of the episodes. It was written by David Jenkins, and it's a wonderful examination of, like, toxic masculinity. And so, like, I was kind of thinking about that as I was reading this book, and there's a lot of elements of this. But I also think it's not just about that. It's about a lot of things at the same time. Like, this book is about masculinity, but it's also about generational trauma and the way that families pass down both trauma and art and pop culture. So like both good things and bad things get passed down through families. It's about mm. growing up too fast and also not about growing up too fast. It's about horse racing. It's about bridge building. It's about having your first love and losing your first love. It's about death. Like it's got all of these different like things that are going on and they all feel very cohesive in this family, which is these, you know, five, five boys who are trying to figure out life basically. And I liked that. It felt very intimate. And yet the scope was huge at the same time because they weren't just talking about the five boys. They're also talking about all of the things that went into this singular family unit, like the history of their mom and the history of their dad and like the history of the street that they're on and the the horse racing track that it was abandoned behind their building. Like all of this stuff 
goes into this book, but it doesn't feel like a labyrinth. It just feels like part of this like tapestry of what the who these people are and what they're going through at this particular time. To return just quickly to the like examination of toxic masculinity, like one of the criticisms that is like it's frequently leveled at the like one of the main ones is that it feels like it goes on too much and diverts too much. So it, it's refreshing to see that you think it's really cohesive because I also think that, but a lot of people read it and they're like, no, it's too all over the place because he'd been writing this book for like over a decade, writing and rewriting it. Two decades. Like yeah. he'd been writing this before he, he published his first two books. Yeah. And so the, this is like a novel, but they, they say that it leans like a lot into boys will be boys type thing. and. Like, obviously, this is a genuine criticism that, um, you know, all of the female roles in the book, they're all just like love interests or mothers or teachers, you know, in the case of... Or both. Yeah, yeah. In the case of multiple ones, they're um, multiple. But at the same time, like, it's not, it's not like the most egregious examples of Boys Will Be Boys. Like, they have to kind of live on their own and there is just five boys but it does, like, they have to come to terms with the fact that they live exclusively in this world of boys. Like, you know, when Clay leaves, this we're gonna, uh, I don't know, just stray slightly into spoilers here, if that's okay. Like, Clay leaves, he and, and they feel that he's, be- like, the other brothers feel like he's betrayed them to go with their father, who abandoned them, you know, left them to fend for themselves when they're really young, after their mother died. Um, and obviously, you know, I, we mentioned this in the nanny Ogg's book club episode on soul music like grief isn't lateral and neither is it unilateral and everyone grieves in their own different ways but he did abandon five children and so like he leaves and they're like when you come back clay we're going to beat the shit out of you and like this has to be done you know that's what the like that's the expectation of it even though they love and care for and end up searching for clay they feel like this is what they have to do and they need to come to terms with the fact that like that's all they've ever really known Right, and the way it's framed is really interesting, too, because they're like, oh, you need to come home. I mean, Matthew's going to beat the crap out of you, and you just have to get that over with, right? Like, you're going to be welcomed home. You just have to get through, like, him beating the crap out of you. Because I thought about that, too, because this book is very violent in the way that it talks about, like, how all these boys are fighting all the time, and they fight each other, and they fight other people, and like their hobbies are very violent. Like the there's the whole thing about how Clay runs, and uh, mm. one of the one of the big things is that like he, the game that they play where he has to try to make it around a track, but then there's all these other boys trying to stop him from going around the track, and like that's like a big event in their like friend group. Yeah, he never makes it past Rory. The other thing, though, is I think that what saves this book from the whole, like, boys will be boys is that the book is not, it's not celebrating it and it's not condemning it. It's very much in the line of this is what they do to survive uh, what has happened to them and the different things, the different traumas that have been passed down to them. Like, their father is the one who teaches Matthew how to fight to defend himself from a bully because, like, that's what his father knows how to do. And so, like, yeah. that's how they all kind of start to relate to each other. But then there's also, like, they refer to their father from the beginning of the book as a murderer. And the whole point is that he, like, murdered who they were when he left. And mm. so there's a lot of, like... Although there is another murderer in the book. 
Yeah, there is another murderer. The whole idea is is that like all of this stuff has been done to them and they have no parents and they're trying to like survive and Matthew kind of has to be the parent, but he's also only 18. Like he doesn't know how to parent. He like he yeah. has to drop out of school to take care of them and so he's just figuring it out. So like I think that that saves it from boys will be boys. Like there is a lot of humor in this book, but it's not morally it's not trying to say that they like were the wild things who had like were you know in this age of innocence or whatever it's like trying to like talk about the different ways that masculinity can pressure you into acting certain ways to act out certain emotions and so i i thought Hmm. that that was quite good i think to your other point about the criticism of this book about how it kind of goes on this is a non-linear storytelling like which is not generally associated with male writers there are obviously male storytellers who do nonlinear stuff, but for the most part, what we think of as the three act structure was developed by men and it is yeah. prioritized mainly by men. Right. So I wanted mm. to say about that. So, I, you know, it's it's interesting that you say that because it reminds me of the fact that here we have an author who has been singled out for, you know, breaking in this case in a different way, but breaking the mold. Yeah, and that's that's good. I mean, it's good to hear that perhaps in a in a little bit of a different way. Mm. Well, right, I'm going to say something that. kind of controversial right now. Okay, I like this book better than I like the book Thief. Same, same. Because I why is that controversial? Well, no. Okay, so the book Thief obviously has gotten a lot of attention, and I think the book Thief is good, and I think that the twist is very interesting. However, the book thief, I think it's all the attention that it does because it falls into the category of what Sam and I like to call world atrocity literature. Yes. And so it gets assigned because we think we tend to think, especially in the U.S. education system, that if something is about if a book is about an atrocity, that it must be more important or more literarily valuable than a book that's not. I will tell you that. The book thief has been replaced. Like its slot has been taken. The world atrocity slot. Most places are actually still reading Night, by the way. That's the, that's, I mean, with, with good reason. Yeah, Night is appropriate. But uh, the book thief has really been replaced by all the light we cannot see. So here's the, the thing. Way. I have read books like The Book Thief before. I think The Book Thief is a perfectly good example of that particular genre of literature. I liked The Book Thief when I read it. This, I felt, was doing something very different. I felt like mm. it was doing something that I hadn't seen before. I mean, I recognized elements of it, but I liked that it was about generational trauma, but that it was also about generational like happiness, like the way that it describes how their maternal grandfather who they never met because he lived in a part of the Soviet Union that during its occupation, how he loved the Iliad and the Odyssey and he passed that down to their mother and their mother passed it down to him. And then Tommy names all his pets after characters from the Iliad and the Odyssey. Like I, I liked that. I thought that was interesting. Like both good and bad things come down through families the nonlinear stuff and the like symbolism and foreshadowing of different things. I thought that was great. It builds this tension out of a story that could be very simple and very straightforward. And it also mimics the way that memory works because we're supposed to believe that the narrator of this book is just sitting down at this old typewriter that he dug up out of his 
paternal grandmother's backyard at the beginning, and he's just writing stuff that he remembers about his family. And I believe that. After like reading this book and the way that this book is written, it feels like someone just sitting down and being like, oh yeah, and that reminds me of this other time that this thing happened. And this reminds me of the story that my father told me about his childhood. Yeah. All of that like made sense to me, but the main character isn't the narrator, much like the book thief. The main character is Clay. And so like it's interesting getting like Clay as a character's perspective filtered through Matthew's perspective. So it is kind of similar to The Book Thief in that way. But again, like, whereas, I mean, I guess if you haven't read The Book Thief, spoiler, uh, whereas Death is not really an approachable character for us to understand um, in The Book Thief, Matthew is a character that we can understand. Actually, it ties into your point about the what I was going to say. It ties into your point about what's passed down from families. Like, the two big things that are passed down from... You know, from Penelope uh, Lashusko and from Michael Dunbar is like is respectively is the works of uh, Homer and it's an obsession with Michelangelo. And so like that forms like a lot of who Clay is as a person, but it also forms a lot of what the narrative is, because like Ulysses is a modern day retelling of, you know, the Odyssey. Uh, And this is also kind of like that, like the dynamic between Michael and Clay is very much the dynamic between Odysseus and Telemachus, where, like, Odysseus shows up and Telemachus has to leave. And that's the same with with Clay. And, you know, like, at the end where he just, like, he's like, I can't do this anymore. And he goes off in his own, basically, odyssey. Um, And then also thematically, everyone in this book, uh, like, on the, the Michelangelo side, everyone in this book is... David and the slaves, depending on what point of the character arc they are. I really want to go to Florence now and see the slaves, like that as a metaphor. There's a there's so much you could unpack in this book. Like it it's I, I'll just wrap up by saying like I really enjoyed it in a way that I don't usually enjoy these types of books. And I started reading it and got almost all the way through it in less than 12 hours. So, mm. and it's a 500 page book. Like it's, it's a long book. So I would definitely recommend it to anyone who likes uh, Marcus Zusak or who just likes what I've described here. Can I ask, what did you think of Clay and Carrie? Because act- shocker to, uh, if you've listened to any episodes of Nanny Ogg's book club, you'll know that I don't care a fig for romantic relationships. I was so invested in Clay and Carrie's relationship. And now when I read the book, like with all of the characters, like when they're doing scenes beforehand, I get sad because I know what's going to happen. And especially with Clay and Carrie, like what did you think of Carrie Novak? The clear-eyed Carrie Novak. Yeah, first of all, I loved Carrie Novak. I thought she was great. I at first thought when she's introduced in the book that she was going to be a manic pixie dream girl. This actually kind of refutes what you were saying. Some people criticize about female characters in the book because she kind of starts out that way as like this love interest or just somebody who clay, you know, adores, but they've, they've always had like this kind of platonic, you know, relationship that's kind of heavily influenced by romance, but Hmm. we get a whole like couple of chapters in the book dedicated to why she wants to become a jockey and like all of the stuff. Like we even get stuff about her father 
in it. And Attack so, Ted. So for me, like, I think she was a developed character. I think she was like the sixth Dunbar boy, <laughs> like yeah. in, in a lot of ways in this book. Like maybe it's not as invested in her as it is the the five people yeah. who live in 18 Archer Street, but she is a very well-developed female character who has other motivations besides her relationship with Clay and who you can imagine doing things on her own. Yeah, I was going to ask, beyond the fact that you obviously find all the three of these things important, I was curious what what we all thought about why you assign these three things together. Okay. Permission to have a, a, a couple of minutes for, yes. a, for a short monologue? Yes. Yeah, permission granted. No, no, no. I will, I will just say very, very quickly that the, the unstated assumption in my idea, which I am now going to state, is that the, the greatest piece of evidence against the idea that we live in an orderly world is literally everything, right? We don't live in an ordered world. In fact, to really just to go back to the magic versus science thing that we magic, I would say, is an attempt to see the world for what it is and find some way to work within it. Whereas science is an obsession with trying to define and figure out rules, you know, and then use those, you know, as if you can ever truly be in control. So, you know, a lot of times we try to talk about, you know, why this person's an auteur, why this person's so good at their craft, or why this person knows so much about this, and, you know, why they're an expert in that, or why these three things define who they are. And and to me, the the thing is you can't none of that's that's nothing that is not a worthwhile use of your time because it's all an accident it's all circumstance it's all where you were born when you were born the the soup of chemicals in your in your in your gray matter you know the things that you were introduced to you know all of those things so what i would say is i think the thing that you do is you reverse it and uh, to me, the interesting conversation is talking about the things that we happen to encounter, how those end up shaping you into who you are, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know the connection between the three things, but what I'm far more curious about is how these three things have influenced you in part to be you know, the person that you are, you know, Nigel. So you talked earlier about how Bridge to Terabithia, you know, like had such a big impact on who you are. And you told the story about the, about the bar thing. Right. You know, and, and I, I think that's interesting. And, and I couldn't possibly guess how those three things have influenced you. Although I think that's an interesting question to ask what what do these things you know say about you and who you've become from interacting with those you know that's really the nice thing about talking about stuff on this 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 podcast uh and and what you guys are doing on nanny og right like it's interesting talking about that and i think more people should be able to talk about you know the things that have affected them and the things that interest them just because that's the value all by itself hmm that's it i'm done good night everybody I feel like I can say how Bridge of Clay and the Mountain Goats get go together more than I can say how 
<laughs> Help, I'm a fish goes together. But part of it's because I haven't seen Help, I'm a fish. So, but I would say that like, even just the way you described it, I could see it as part of your personality mm. as well. So like for me though, I think you have a real love of language and you have a real love of the way that language can put certain feelings and thoughts into like a concrete expression. And I could see how the mountain goats and bridge of clay. Like as I was reading bridge of clay, I was like, yeah, this is Nigel. Like Nigel likes this. Nigel likes this way of, of taking emotions and putting them into words. And so like, that's how I see those two things going together. Again, haven't seen help. I'm a fish. So I'm not sure I, I know how that one fits in, but I can also see how it's part of your personality. But I, I really think that Nigel loves making human connection and loves sharing emotional stuff with, with people that she finds, um, you know, pivotal, um, and just decided to to share these these things with us i like so what i wanted to do like with the process of this was i well first of all i wanted to give like three different types of media to you and not have like you know two books two films or or or, you know like all one of the same thing and then i tried to match it up and i i went into this with like why i gave andy the film and not the mountain goats why i gave sam specifically the mountain goats because that's kind of like an in-joke between us as well i gave you a book tessa because i know you like reading i also wanted to like repay you for introducing me to discworld by giving you a book that i enjoyed and so then i was like 40 more to go yeah i just now i need to give you 40 more books um looking around my (laughs) shed frantically (laughs) yeah so then like that was that sorted so then i had to think uh then i had to like i think you really did get uh, obviously i don't have definite answers because like i don't really know who i am as a person but like the language thing really is like there's a lot of turns of phrase in um bridge of clay that really like you know um there's one line near the start where they describe the dunbar boys as like a comic book kapow of blood and bones and beasts um and stuff like that so that's really good and then also i mean help i'm a fish is kind of the outlier in it but it is also like just extremely bizarre and i'm kind of like an insane person you do like bizarre yeah Yeah. (laughs) i mean i just like i just randomly will do things and they make no sense i mean even if you look at my twitter feed my twitter feed is kind of the encapsulation of this because sometimes it's like deep scholarly thoughts or like poems that i've written or whatever, which reflect this, like, how language works and taking emotion in. And then, I don't know whether I've tweeted it currently, but in my drafts I just have written, can you copyright a ghost? Um, Or, like, you tweet about things like if you see Elon Musk stealing gooseberries to report him to the authorities, so... Yes, um, yeah, but, yeah, if, if you see Elon Musk in the berry shop trying to steal some gooseberries, you report that guy to security immediately. Um... He does it's performative. He doesn't need those gooseberries. <laughs> it's like kind of a, a like a conflicted thing between this weird like spontaneous kind of like bizarre world and then like very pretty like language. Another book which I could have assigned was this would have been The Starless Sea. 
by Aaron Morgenstern, which is also, it's very, like... I do love Aaron Morgenstern. Yeah, her writing, in especially in The Starless Sea, is very similar in, like, how it does the thing, like, how it does the, like, putting emotions and translating them. It's not... She doesn't write like Zusak at all, but it, it it does the same things in the same way. That's book two of 41. <laughs> <laughs> you should make a list of actually, like... 40 more books that I should read. Nigel's Payback Book Club. Ooh. Add that one to the network. Add that one to the network. Oh. Tune in next week for our 100th episode of Monkey Off My Backlog. We're going to have some fun stuff planned. But in the meantime, where can we find you for your both beautiful and bizarre tweets, Nigel? On Twitter, at SpicyNigel, where... um, as you've mentioned, I have been tweeting about Elon Musk at the Barry store. That combination of tweeting that you do, the the serious and the comic, the integration of Elon Musk distracts his tweets. I would describe that as sublime. And I don't mean that in any beatific way. I mean you're literally underneath the lime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where can people listen to your network, Nigel? You can listen to them on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. You just got to search up um, hyperfixations. You got to uh, search. You, you can search up archive admirers. You can search up Lesbianus, which is like you know not really a thing anymore. But we do also have like a, a an audio production of a Christmas Carol. Actually, I just loaded up my tweets there. Um, and a nice tie into one of my previous monkey episodes. I tweeted about book snacks because they released new DLC and it's All right. Yeah, and then also here's a here's a quick one to round it off before uh, like at the end of my plugs. It's a good thing Jesus already paid for my sins because I forgot my wallet. Hey. <laughs> yes, Sam, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at sam underscore morris nine. But if you think my tweets are as half as interesting as Nigel's, think again. <laughs> you can find me online on Twitter at Andy Noted. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find Nigel and I on our other podcast that we have mentioned many times during this recording, Nanny Ox Book Club, where we are reading our way through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. We just last week released the episode on soul music. Very exciting stuff. Yes. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Do you want to say it, Nigel? Get that monkey off your back. <laughs>